Hello, this is Pastor Kenny, and thank you for listening to the Living Hope Podcast. We've got a special episode for you today featuring Pastor Jeff Fuller with seminary professor Todd Bolsinger, the author of Canoeing the Mountains. Enjoy. Well, thank you again for making the time to take the time and tune in and listen to this interview. I certainly believe people's stories make our story much better, more impactful, and less ignorant if we would just take time to listen and learn from one another. Uh, my name is Jeff Fuller. I'm the pastor at Living Hope Wesleyan Church, and we thank you uh, so much for tuning in and being a part of uh, what's taking place through this time of uh, transition. And one helping us now is uh, Todd Bolsinger. Todd, how are you? I'm well, thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm so excited. Uh, our district superintendent, I'm part of the Wesleyan denomination, and Dr. Carl Eastlack, um suggested your book, Canoeing the Mountains. And first, when I read the title, it was not something that captivated me. I said, that's hard to pronounce. Uh, when you first came up with this, not idea, but researched um, what took place, Canoeing the Mountains, can you tell me what intrigued you most about this story? Well, the story, of course, uh, Canoeing the Mountains is an irony, right? You can't Canoe Mountains. And what it basically is about is the story of Lewis and Clark who were navigating the uh, Missouri River to try to find the Columbia River to find a water route that would connect the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific Ocean. And they ran smack dab into the Rocky Mountains and had to ask the question, so what do you do if you're a canoer and you face mountains? And that, I realized we had a, a wonderful opportunity to think about leadership in an uncharted territory and in a changing world that many of us are facing today. And when did this book come out? The book came out in 2015, and um, I continue to talk about it even today. Well, I think it's appropriate today as we find ourselves in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. How have you uh, learned new things from this book during this time versus that of when you first wrote it or when it just came out? Yeah, so I wrote it because... Um, uh, as a Christian pastor, I was acknowledging the fact that after 1700 years of what we call Christendom, where in the West, Christianity had a cultural privilege, you know, where the basically culture supported, gave a home home court advantage, if you were to yeah. Christian, Christianity and churches, that in one generation, it all changed. And now all of a sudden we were in a post-Christendom world where more and more churches found themselves feeling like they were on the margins and Christians felt marginalized. Well, then that rapid one generation after 1700 years of, of being the same change, one generation of change. Um, well, on March 13th, 2020, uh, for almost the whole world, everything changed overnight. And by September, by that Sunday, most churches were online and everything changed because of the pandemic. And what we realized is that the only thing that is really constant about change is that it is speeding up and that we've got to be able to adapt to it. Well, that's definitely true. And I know for myself, being in the Northeast and for you being in California, sometimes we're targeted as uh, very liberal. My wife is from Michigan and my brother-in-law, who still lives in uh, Green Rapids area, so kind of the mecca of uh, Christian Christendom, uh, he says how in Michigan it's the same problem, but everybody says they're a Christian and if they were to die, that they were going to heaven. Whereas here in Vermont, or presumably in California, People are saying, if there's a hell, I'm going there and I'm okay with it. Can you just talk how we can better engage in conversation with those that would say, if there's a hell, I'm fine going there? Well, you know, I don't think, I, I actually don't believe anybody who wants to go to hell. I just, think that, I, don't, I just don't believe it. What I believe is that people want 
um, to believe that they can be autonomous and that they can be able to live their life on their own terms. And I think what is happening in a time of a pandemic is we start realizing there are things that are bigger than ourselves. There are viruses and climate change and uh, economic recessions and things that really can disrupt our little lives. And that if we think we are master of our own domain, we are fooling ourselves. So I think more people are open more than ever to the reality that we need to think about much bigger um, issues and much more um, bigger spiritual issues. I just want to read this quote, then I'll bring it back up. If you're going to scale the mountains of ministry, you need to leave behind the canoes and find new navigating tools for people that would question and say, everybody says uh, change the method, but not the message, but they're really compromising. How important is it that we do learn these new ways to navigate this new different? Yeah, so, so one of the ways to think about this is the deeper mission of Christianity is not in our methods. It's not in whether we have uh, stained glass windows or even sanctuaries, right? There were first several hundred years of Christianity, there was no uh, gathered church in the same way. So let's be really clear that methods change all the time. What's really gotta be kept fo focused on is our mission to participate in God's work, to be the answer to Jesus's prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And grace of God, we get to receive that in our own lives and we get to offer that to others. And so it's always been about changing methods. The problem is, is that we all get really, really connected to and com committed to our methods. Oh, that's so true. Todd, can you just back up a little bit? Now you work at uh, Fuller Theological Seminary, but did you grow up in a Christian family? When did you feel like this was going to be your vocational path? And did you fight against it when you were younger? Actually, so I was raised Roman Catholic. My uh, my grandfather's name was Guido Evangelisti, um, and I was raised Catholic. And I met a great group of folks in uh, in a campus life club. It's a, it's a club that was run by Youth for Christ, where I was basically introduced to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And very, very quickly, I realized that these folks who walked with me through one of the hardest times of my adolescence, which was my parents' divorce. What they did, I wanted to do. I wanted to walk with people through their pain. And so very early, um, I was committed to ministry. I didn't know I'd end up being a pastor. I had absolutely no idea I'd end up getting a PhD in theology. I had no idea I'd end up being a coach for church leaders and you know leadership coach. But what I did know is that I wanted to introduce people to the hope of Jesus Christ that I had experienced in a time of my own pain. And I know among Christians, we talk often about that, but could you just share an experience or the feeling? I say that cautiously. I, I hesitate when I talk about feelings, but when you do get to engage in those conversations where that epiphany happens, that light bulb comes on and how God created us really comes through in that person you're speaking with about the truth and reality of Jesus and the freedom and hope salvation that he brings and gives. Hmm. Like share an experience about when I've seen that happen. Is that what you're asking? Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, usually what's so powerful about it is that the Holy spirit is usually far in front of me. Like, right. I'm busy preaching a sermon or I'm busy talking to someone or I'm making a point and I've realized it is the work of the spirit that is spoken to people in size too deep for words as Paul says that is already happening and so I usually believe that by the time I know what's going on it's already happened God has already been at work and that I get to gently and graciously enter into that process as a companion not as the cause 
And I think what's most powerful for me as a leader is that the work I do in congregations is very similar. What God is doing to renew God's church is way bigger than me. I just get to participate in coaching and walking alongside leaders who are called to actually lead those congregations through that transformation. Hey, Todd, so being at Fuller Theological Seminary, it's been said that uh, atheists, more atheists come out of seminary than go in. And I uh, think that's, well, anyway, I have my own thoughts about that. But when we try to break everything down that God does in a system, how much caution or pause should we make just so we allow room for the Holy Spirit to do what only God can do? Yeah, exactly. So I, so I'm, I'm a huge fan. I loved my seminary experience. I mean, I, uh, after, I mean, I got a master's degree and then I got a PhD, but I stayed in the church. I, I got a, I got all those degrees so that I could serve the church. And then 27 years after I was first, um, or after I entered the ministry, I ended up going back to seminary uh, to work with my con with my school on helping them be a place that serves pastors even better in a changing world. And so I think the most important thing to realize is every institution has to serve something bigger than itself, just like individuals, right? And so when a, a church or a school or a person is about your own survival, your own thriving, then we're off track. When we are serving a mission greater than ourselves, and for me, that's the mission of the kingdom of God, then we are doing the thing that God has called us to and created us to be. That's so good. Uh, behind me, there's a picture of a seminary a webinar that took place a little while ago, but Christian innovation in unchar uh, uncharted territory. Mm -hmm. That phrase that says that uh, desperation breeds innovation. Mm -hmm. Has there been a time where it's been more necessary than we find ourselves in 2020? Yeah, yeah, actually. So this is actually a great moment for those who want to experiment because um, many of the assumptions are just gone. And if you think about what I lo love about I've I have a number of my colleagues and I have worked with folks up in Silicon Valley who are all the great innovators. And they will tell you that doing prototypes, doing cheap, small, humble experiments is the key to making really big, lasting change. And this is why I think that right now is the perfect time for church pastors and church planters and small church pastors and people all over the world who have a people of faith to try experiments for living out the gospel with their neighbors right in their neighborhood and watch what God is doing and trust that those are the seeds, like the, Jesus said, the mustard seed that is going to become something so huge that even birds can find their home in it. And so innovation is really about that. It's about small experiments to try to find really big changes. And John C. Maxwell wrote that book, uh, Failing Forward. And I know for myself, and I think I'm relatively young, even though I'm 45 and just wear a hat because it mm -hmm. makes me feel younger than I am. But uh, I get a little bit concerned about failing and I want to be perceived in a way where I'm vulnerable and real, but I want to avoid those mistakes. What do you say about throwing caution to the wind? Well, so I think I think people need to be able to be in environments where they create uh, safe failure, right? Like I would say, make safe, modest experiments. So, yeah. as, as a more senior leader, you know, I'm, I'm about ten years older than you. One of the things that I try to do is create context for younger leaders to fail and to learn, because I think failure is a kind of learning. That's all it is. It's not about did it work or not. It's what we learn from it. And if you learn from failure, then it's not failure. And that's and that might be hard on the ego. Right. But it's actually great for the soul. 
And that's one of the most important things about the whole Christian method um, idea is that we are saved by grace. We are redeemed even from our very worst things. So we certainly can make mistakes and we can learn as we go. I mean, being a disciple is a learner. That's all that word means. Yeah, yeah. And so to recognize that to be a learner is, um, I mean, fail like Peter, you know, fail, fail right, right. like any of those folks. And you will find yourself being written into God's story in a pretty profound way. When did you find out that you wanted to put your text in a book setting or blog setting when you wanted to become a writer? Well, um, I started blogging mostly because I wanted, I was a pastor at the time and I wanted to be able to enter into a larger conversation than what I uh, tend to, to be able to, what I faithfully needed to teach my congregation each week. There were there were lots of conversations that, that were not about what I was preaching. I needed to be faithful to the scriptures, faithful to my community, community but I also wanted to be in this dark, deep, deeper conversation. So today, actually, most of my work actually isn't even on my own personal blog. It's part of a group, the Dupree Leadership Organization, so that I get a chance to, to be part of in collaboration with lots of folks. And actually, if anybody wants to just get my stuff, the easiest way to do it now is a join by text. You just text the word uncharted to 66866 and uncharted one word, text it to 66866 and you can get connected to not only all my resources, but the ones of my colleagues in the conversation we're having about this leadership conversation. That's wonderful. That's Yeah, I'm gonna make sure I text that after this interview. I just have a question for you, and I guess because I love to play sports and I think it's competition, maybe it's just um, I need more counseling, but how much of a, not competitive, but how do you, how much do you push yourself? How do you push yourself so you do stay ahead as a thought leader in the conversations that are taking place, or do you feel like I do so often that I'm behind the eight ball and just trying to catch up? Is that something you put on yourself being with this group that you kind of really push yourself to read and expand things that uh, you've never thought about before? It's interesting because I was an athlete, so I, I get that. And I, I love sports, too. But I think that um, I really believe that leadership is not supposed to be competitive. Hmm. We need as much humility as possible. We need collaboration. Um, we need to be able, I mean, we need each other to be resilient enough to go through change. And so one of the things that I think can really get in our way is the, is these notions of competition that pit us against the very people who are supposed to be our partners. Yeah, and yeah. is it like the, the, the greatest challenges in the world are going to take every bit of shared collaborative creativity we can get in order to, and to shape them together, which is why, you know, even Jesus, who is the sole person who could save the world developed a group of disciples to be his team, mm -hmm. right? So it's, it's really important. Yeah, that is so good and so key. And something that I'm continuing to learn is the importance of learning, whether it's continued education, whether at Fuller or other places. For you, how do you push yourself to keep learning? Is it just in conversation with others or is there like a reading list that you're trying to make your way through? Yeah. So, so no, uh, so one of the things I have learned is that learning is helps my resilience. Hmm. So I, I wrote a book on resilience and what I learned is that people who are, who are committed to learning endure longer because in learning gives you purpose and meaning even when things aren't going well. So I'm a very, not only a curious person, but I am actually just, I'm a voracious learner. So yeah, it's re-podcast friends, uh, conversations. I mean, my favorite way of learning actually is a conversation. And 
Um, one of the reasons I love podcasts and stuff like this is because I don't get to travel around the country anymore, yeah. having dinner with people in their in their hometowns, uh, listening to their stories and learning from them. So I get to do it this way now. And so we read what you write. Who is an author that you are reading now or someone that you enjoy learning from through print? Yes, yeah. So I actually read really broadly and then and that helps. Um, so at the moment, like I'm reading uh, Jonathan Sachs, who is a uh, Jewish rabbi who wrote a book called Lessons in Leadership, which is a commentary on the first five books of the Bible from a Jewish perspective about leadership. And I'm reading Jeremy Tisby, The Color of Compromise, about the way in which race and racism has been um, unfortunately and painfully woven into the church from its very beginning in the United States. And so there's two examples right there, one an African-American scholar, another a Jewish rabbi that really actually has helped shaped me. And then in terms of my own Christian formation, I'm, I'm deeply formed by the, um, by the spiritual practices of the Jesuits and at the same time, my own reformed tradition, uh, people like N.T. Wright and their work in, in, the, in the work of the gospels and Jesus. So it's that eclectic set of voices, again, collaborating, that has really shaped my life. I think that's really good. And it's been stated over and over about how people have felt isolated during this time. Mm -hmm. And it's not good, whether it's a student, uh, not mm -hmm. mental illness, but it's certainly weighing on people mentally as well as physically. Yeah. How important is it that the church people engage with one another as we're trying to discover and learn new ways to do that outside of just, you know, an hour or two on a Sunday morning. Yeah. Well, so I would say that, um, I would say that, uh, the Christianity is profoundly relational and profoundly like you cannot be a, a unchurched Christian in Paul's writing is called turned over to Satan. <laughs> so, um, so to be really aware that we are created for the church, we're created for community, we're created for partnership, we're created for, you know, we're two or more gathered in my name. I am there, Jesus says. So in a time of pandemic, what we have to do is be deeply grateful that we have technology to connect us and also experience the loss that we are not connected. I mean, it's been a long time since I have hugged my brothers and sisters in Christ at my home church. And I look forward to that day. But right now, for the sake of the love of neighbor and of wanting to participate in something bigger than my own ability to hug my friends, um, you know, I, I practice social distancing and I'm really deeply committed to the church being a safe place um, that takes seriously the impact of this pandemic. Yeah, I think that's pretty wise. Um, so it's been said that uh, when you're trying to balance ministry and family, family is your ministry. Could you just mm -hmm. speak to that, whether it's uh, young pastors or ministry leaders that they think that you know, my family is going to understand because I'm working for God, but really it's kind of being used of Satan or can be used to drive a wedge between your family and that of what God wants to do. Well, I can say this is that I've um, there are very few responsibilities on the world that are mine alone. And one of them is to be father to my children and, uh, and husband to my wife. Nobody else can do that. Um, and even I have adult children who are really beautiful adults who are self-sufficient and confident, but I'm still called to be their father and I'm still called to be in relationship with them. So to me, it's not an either or it's, it's a, it's a function of my identity and my identity is connected to my calling. So when I say I am called as a minister, I am called as a married man who is a father who is deeply committed to my community and my friends. It, Paul, uh, I wasn't, I'm just not called as some autonomous person. I'm called as the person that I have been created through my relationships. So it's never an either or. 
Um, it's really a, an expression of your my sense of identity. Yeah, that's so good. Our son, he's attending college, freshman out in uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan area. And then our daughter is a junior in high school. And it's just a different time. And it's funny because people will say, well, Jeff, you're a pastor. You must be a great dad. And it's like, well, actually, I really have to work hard at bringing those two together where my daughter sees me frustrated at her or my wife or the dog, but then hears me preaching on Sunday where I'm talking about the joy and love that God has for everybody, no matter the situation. How did you grow in God's maturity and identity where those there wasn't as large of a gap between the two? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm again, I'm going to say some similar things. It really was through relationships. I mean, um, I have a, a, an incredible wife that we met young and we had to grow up together. We both came out of broken homes, so we needed a lot of wisdom. We had older friends who cared for us. We paid a lot of money in therapy. We did a lot of work on our marriage so that we could offer our children something different than we'd had. And we are surrounded by friends who've loved us for our entire life. I mean, we, I have a great community of friends who are um, deeply um, dear to me because they actually helped shape our marriage and shape our life. Recently, I listened to a podcast and he suggested that all pastors should go to some type of therapy counseling. Would you agree? And if so, why? Well, I would put it this way, which is um, if I, I believe that if you're in leadership, that you're never supposed to lead alone. Never. I mean, you see that with Jesus. If Jesus picked three people to be with him um, as his closest companions and 12 to be his team, then we have no excuse. We see it with Moses. We see it throughout the scriptures. So one of the things I really believe is that every leader needs par partners. They need mentors and they need friends. They need all three. And that for most of us, we have none of those. Most pastors, if you listen to the report, yeah. very few, few partners, they have very few mentors and very few friends. And in the mentor category, to me, I just would say, if I was a bishop, if I was your bishop, I would say, if you don't, if you try to lead and you don't have a coach, a spiritual director or a therapist, I'm going to consider that leadership malpractice hmm. because you are putting yourself and other people in danger. And I got this from my wife, who is a marriage and family therapist. And she said, you know, in the state of California, if I make a mistake and I'm not under supervision, the state of California holds me liable. I need to be under supervision. And she once looked at me and said, I got 15 clients, Todd. And I, the state of California expects me to have supervision. You have 1,500 members at your church and nobody ever expects that of you. And I thought that's wrong. Why is it so easy for pastors not to be held accountable or to submit to somebody else's authority? Well, I think part of it is because we have this false notion that spirituality is is something that happens outside of community. It's, it's just a false notion. We think that God, you know, me and God alone are going to figure it out and that I'm supposed to lead alone. And, and what's crazy about it is when you read the scriptures, you don't see that. You just don't see it anywhere. And yet, whenever people get disconnected from community is when things go wrong. So I think that one of the things we have to do is humbly repent of our autonomy and our independence and become more interdependent, more collaborative. I mean, just go read, if nothing else, read the first line of every one of Paul's letters. First line. Yeah, yeah. And what you'll see is names. Paul and Barnabas, Paul and yeah. Silas, Paul and Timothy. You'll never hear of Paul alone. Well, that, that's so good. And uh, I have to do more research on it, but I heard it in Bible college. So I always assumed it was true, which uh, you always have to follow up with some of those stats. But 
It said that law enforcement and clergy were two of the most insecure professions uh, across the board. Do you think some clergy are insecure or is that a generalization that is true? I don't know about the statistics, but I can tell you, I coach a lot of pastors and I know myself. And I know that a lot of the reasons why many of us get into ministry is that we get affirmed hmm. in ways that uh, feed our false self. So, you know, one of the things you know, you'll know this, Jeff, is you'll finish a good sermon and people will walk out after church, hug you and tell you they love you. When was the last time you told your plumber that you loved the plumber, <laughs> right? So there's a huge addiction to affirmation that comes with a lot of people in ministry. And it's one of the reasons why we have to be really honest and have places in our lives where we don't need to be affirmed so that we can actually serve. And so hopefully not a stretch, but trying to bring it back to the book, Canoeing the Mountains. Do you think that's why perhaps some ministry leaders are finding this season so difficult? Because instead of being affirmed, they're being found out that you do not know the answer because nobody knows the answer right now on how to navigate this COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I say that one of the hard, interesting things about seminary is everybody who comes to seminary, somebody told them, you're the best Christian I know. You should go pro. <laughs> you should go to professional Christian school. And they tend to believe and then they get there and realize that what they're actually learning is a bunch of tools for when they get into ministry, they are going to have to navigate lots of places where they do not know. And that's the big challenge is you're a master of divinity. It sounds like a superhero, but you got to yeah. stand before people and say, I don't know what's next, but by God's grace together, we are going to take one step at a time faithfully and we're going to learn as we go. We're going to figure out how to face the things we got to lose and the losses we're going to face. And we're going to keep going faithfully to God's mission until the day is done. That's so good. Um, so I've never had an original thought. I'm usually typically decent at hearing a thought and learning how to apply it in my life. But someone said that uh, servant leadership is um, you don't need the servant part because true leadership is learning how to serve. For you personally, did that come naturally uh, to serve people or was that something you really had to work at? Yeah, well, I would say that the models of leadership that I grew up with were more traditional. The leaders are in charge. It was as a Christian being discipled into leadership that I really learned that whole concept. And so as a pretty young Christian, I had a really great person who supervised me named Lynn Ziegenfuss, who just taught me that to be a Christian is to be a servant. And to be a Christian leader means that you are the you're, you lead the serving. And so um, it's really been central to my Christian discipleship from the very beginning. So, but it doesn't come natural. It's a, it's a second, second nature kind of thing, the spirit and lots of practice. So when you're looking for a mentor or a coach or you're advising somebody, would you say, try to go find somebody that you can pay professionally to help you and the others come through relationships? Or is that something that you're always advising people to seek out, look for people that could really invest into their lives? Well, I always tell people two things. I tell my, I tell my students more important than finding a mentor <laughs> is that you are a mentee. Hmm. Whole studies that show that, that adults don't learn in the same way that youth learn. So like if you're a kid, most of us as youth pastors knew that we had to take the initiative to reach out to kids to keep helping them know how important they were. But in adult learning, adults have to take responsibility for their own learning. So that means you have to be vulnerable. So I always say, if you're willing to show up vulnerably, honestly, authentically to a wise person who will listen to you deeply, then good things will happen. 
And that can be a mentor that is uh, that is a friend. But most of the time, some of the deeper things we need, we need the voice of people who have been professionally trained as therapists or spiritual directors yeah. or coaches. And some, so, you know, one of the best parts about being in ministry is a number of us have some kind of professional development fund. Not everybody does. But if you do, I would say, don't put it into going to some flashy conference. Not, not now. There aren't even there, not even happening. Right, right. Put it finding wise people who are going to willing to listen to you and invest in your development and your formation. The people you can be vulnerable with. Can you share um, the process of going from intuition to intention? My friend told me that, Jeff, you just try to read the room. You need to learn how to lead the room. Could you just mm. talk about how that happens? Well, you have a wise friend. That's a really interesting observation. <laughs> yeah, I think that is. I would put it this way, which is we have a tendency to believe that our intentions are what matters. So I intend to do well. I'll read the room and I'll try to do well and I'll try to serve people and care for them. How people actually view us is on our impact. Hmm. So you might tend, you might want to be great, but if you step on someone's toes, you cut them off when you when they're talking, you don't listen very well because you're trying to be clever, they're not gonna experience your intention. They're gonna experience your impact. So what, being intentional about the experience you want other people to have is a way of actually leading through in those experiences. Todd, could you sh uh, share an experience where you knew that uh, you did not need the proverbial canoe, but you kept carrying it just because you wanted that resource in your back pocket? Oh yeah, all the time, actually all the time. Like, um, so, so for example, I'm like right now, um, I, I'm a professor at Fuller Seminary and I am a talking head, right? So I've been preaching and teaching. I have been uh, putting people in a room my whole life and speaking and teaching to them. Now I teach entirely online. One of the hardest things for me to do was to learn how to teach when the dominant thing wasn't my start startling personality, right? Yeah, yeah. Like I can tell jokes. I had to actually structure <laughs> lessons for people to learn when I'm not in the room with them. And I gotta tell you, it's really hard. Like I keep defaulting back to, hey, why don't you just uh, call me and I'll tell you, talk to you or get on a Zoom call and we'll talk it through together. Nothing wrong with it. But what I really needed to learn was how to be a better teacher, a better instructor, a better coach. And it was, it was hard to do because, you know, today's problems are usually the result of yesterday's successes. Yeah, yeah. You were successful with something in the past then you tend to keep going back to it over and over and over again. And that's hard to give it up. Yeah, I read a recent study just uh, sharing how many pastors are resigning. And again, with law enforcement, whether it's insecurity or this statistic, mm -hmm. it said that law enforcement and clergy are retiring at a high rate right now. Mm -hmm. um, is that because they're at retirement age or is that because it is so difficult to learn and change? Well, I, th I think that for most of us, this isn't what we signed up for, right? Right. Like, I think the hardest part, like, I, I won't say anything about law enforcement. I think there's, I mean, I have a great respect for law enforcement and there's a whole different set of issues that they have to me about. But I can tell you about clergy, which is this. Almost every pastor became a pastor because they loved God, they loved people, and they wanted to introduce the people they loved to the God they loved. And many of them said the best way to do that is through teaching the scriptures. Yeah. So if you say... What I want to spend my life doing is is helping people understand the scriptures so they can love God. 
Well, now all of a sudden they're find themselves in an environment where they have to lead through conflict. They've got to lead change. They got to lead. They got to lead strategic planning. They got to think in ways they never thought before. I mean, I mean, I got to tell you, most pastors of my generation never thought they'd be sitting behind a microphone with a headset and a television and calling that a pastoral world. Yeah. Right? So even those changes are overwhelming, and what you find is people saying, "I'm exhausted. I don't want to keep learning." and I wish, I mean, I, I, have, I know of a person, one friend of mine who coaches, who said his client, his coaching client said to him yesterday, who's a pastor, um, I wish I was at retirement age. Every day I wish I was at retirement age. I just can't afford retirement. And that's, we've got to overcome that by helping people recover a sense of wholehearted learning. Yeah. Hey, Todd, a couple more questions and I'll get you out. Thanks again for making the time. And I know it's early where you are, so I certainly appreciate it. Uh, in the back of my mind, in an honest moment, I would state that I wonder if there's a book inside of me that I could market and not have the book be successful, but then have coffee mugs and bookmarks and make a youth edition and a preschool teacher's edition and a homeschool edition. When you first started writing, was it just something you had a message to get out or did somebody approach you and say, man, that would really benefit uh, the church as a whole? Well, I first started writing because um, I had people say to me um, that, that when I spoke and when I taught, they said, "Hey, this you, this might work well in a book." So I, you, so that so my answer to that is, so so write it, try it, see, see how people respond to it, right? Like, um, and I had a book that came out of my dissertation that did okay, and then I had a book that did terrible. And as a matter of fact, I didn't write another book for ten years because I thought, okay, I'm not going to be that kind of writer. Um, Canoeing the Mountains came after my spending almost seven years with pastors all over the country talking about leading change. And then I realized I, this I want to put down on paper and I will see if it will and it will take it. And one publisher took it, one publisher, everybody else turned it down and now it sold 100,000 copies. So you just never, I mean, the thing about it is you just never know. I think that you've got to think about that as serving in any way that comes, not trying to be successful. And if that's in writing, then you know, just try it, like, like try it and see if people respond to it. So with your other books or your next book, how do you not compare it to the quote success you've had with canoeing the mountains? Well, my next book came out of talking to people about canoeing the mountains. So like, so this is what keeps me writing, which is yeah. when I travel around the country and talk to people about canoeing the mountains, what I find is the person who invites me there usually invites me to dinner and then they tell me what's on their heart. And what I heard over and over and over again was canoeing the mountains is really helpful. I don't know if I have anybody who has the stomach to actually do this. Wow. And I had a pastor who said to me, I think I can learn to lead change, Todd. I just don't know if I can survive it. And hmm. so my new book is on resilience. How do you develop the resilience to face down the internal resistance of your people when you're trying to lead them in change? And that's the story of Moses and the story of Martin Luther King Jr. And it's really a story about developing temp what I call tempered resilience. Um, and that only came out of, so it comes for me out of listening, listening to people, feeding back that story, and then writing it down and seeing if people want to respond to it. So Todd, with the current events that are taking place, uh, an election coming up, we already know about the social injustice and all sorts of things. How would you advise Christians to live as some have hoped or thought this pandemic would be over by now, but we still are going into, well, tumultuous times? How important is it that we do take a stand, 
but that our voice is heard through the love and grace of Jesus and not just our own opinion or how we grew up. I think one of the best things we can offer the world is the hope of people who live in every circumstance faithful to the calling that God has given us to be the witness of God's presence in the world. So to the hope of our calling. So that means, so for me, whatever that circumstance is, and again, through one of the best parts about reading church history is people who've lived through profoundly painful experiences and were faithful in those moments. So the most important thing isn't when the pandemic will be over. What I think about is, can I live faithfully today as many days as needed until the pandemic is over? And um, can I live faithfully under any president? Can I live faithfully um, and walk alongside people speaking about injustice because I want to be on the side of justice? Like, like, what does it mean for me to be faithful to the calling of this moment um, in a way that others in the past have had to be faithful to their moment? So wise. Uh, my wife would be upset because my geography is not as good as hers. But are you being affected by the wildfires taking place? Well, our family is and our friends. We are actually I'm I am personally in our a mountain place in Idaho. So I, I experienced some smoke in the air. But our uh, in California, where most of where we live most of the year, where our, or the school is and stuff, it's um it's being affected pretty deeply. We're about we've got fires within five or six miles of of our home and 10 miles of our campus. And then with the campus at uh, Fuller Seminary, do you have students on campus or is everybody uh, at home or remote? This year, we're all at home, we're all online. And we're a school that's mostly on, been a lot of online anyway, so we're pretty good at that. Most, like, you know, I have a entire cohort of doctoral students who are all uh, learning online and I'll be, be teaching a Korean doctor of ministries uh, with students in Korea online. So we're good at the online stuff. We miss, the collegiality and friendship and community of when we have, when we're able to gather on the campus, we don't have that. We're also, so we're also working remotely too. So, yeah. Hey, when is your next book do well, or is that something that you're constantly thinking about uh, putting out another book? Well, I have a book out on November 10th. My new book is Tempered Resilience, um, yeah. how Christians are formed in, the, how leaders are formed in the crucible of change, Tempered Resilience. It comes out November 10th. And um, and when that book comes out, I'll start speaking on it. And then I'll listen to people and start working on the next one. Oh, congratulations. That's wonderful. The final question I have for you. If you were asked to play in a fictional movie, fictional movie, would you want to play the hero or the villain? Oh, I'm always want to play the hero. I just, for better or worse, I, I'm, I'm boring that way. Yeah, yeah. See, I think you're more mature than me because I always tell people being a pastor, if it's a fictional movie, I would want to play the villain, kind of my uh, alter ego, and maybe that's just a uh, lack of um, maturity in my own mind. But Man, uh, you're more, it's your more creativity on your part. I'm just, I'm just kind of a boring old guy. The best answer I heard was somebody wanted to play Captain Jack Sparrow because that's a villain, but is also a hero. And no, that was pretty nuanced. So that was yeah, great. But yeah. hey, Todd, thank you so much for making the time. I say this genuinely. I appreciate you making the time to put people's conversations into a book because it does help so many. And I know for myself, it's a tremendous encouragement even though we're in the middle of a crisis to be encouraged, it's uh, it's been, um, well, I think it's a God thing that just lifts your spirits during these times. So thank you sincerely for, uh, for doing that. Yeah, you're welcome, Jeff. Thanks for having me on. It was a fun conversation. 
And again, that's Todd Bolsinger. Make some time if you have not gotten uh, his book, Canoe in the Mountains, please do. And there's certainly uh, other books and things taking place that he's a part of. And I would encourage you to uh, be a part. If you enjoyed this episode of the Living Hope Wesleyan podcast and want to know more about what our church is all about, please visit hopeforvermont.org. Thank you so much for listening.